Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Jennifer Martin to the show. Dr. Martin is a clinical psychologist and professor of medicine at UCLA, and she's a member of the AASM Board of Directors. She is one of the authors of the Academy's new clinical practice guideline, Behavioral and Psychological Treatments for Chronic Insomnia Disorder in Adults. Welcome to Talking Sleep, Dr. Martin. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. So, you know, one of the quotes I see a lot recently is that as many of as half of Americans will experience insomnia. And so this is a sleep disorder we're obviously hearing a lot more about in mainstream media during the pandemic. And so this conversation and the new guidelines are particularly timely. I mean, doesn't it seem like we're seeing more headlines or stories about insomnia lately? Or is that just me and my practice? Actually, we we don't have the same detailed epidemiology about what's been happening to sleep during the COVID pandemic as we do about what was happening before the pandemic, because of course, this is just something new to all of us in the past year. But what little evidence we do have shows that people are struggling a lot more with their sleep. Uh, this is, you know, some the data that we do have and also what we're seeing in terms of consumer behavior. So we are seeing that people are buying a lot more over-the-counter sleep aids. We know that alcohol use has gone up during the pandemic, and a portion of that is likely because people are struggling with sleep. Yeah, I saw your I saw your um statement about melatonin yesterday. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really timely too. Yeah, it's interesting actually. I've I've talked to a few uh, reporters from different media outlets who are really intrigued by this um, this increase in sales of of melatonin in particular, but also other over the counter sleep aids, and trying to understand why that is. Isn't it funny? We're going to look back on pandemic, and do you remember early in pandemic when Walmart said that they sold a bunch of shirts and no pants? <laughs> yeah, and for see. some reason in California, we were running out of bottled water, which <laughs> always made me laugh because that's something we all think about here in terms of earthquake preparedness. But I'm not sure what about uh, a, a pandemic of a contagious disease would make the water not come out of your tap. <laughs> <laughs> all these trends, right? People yeah. 20 years from now will look back and they'll be able to see, you know, all these different things that we learned about during pandemic. Right. So, so talk to me about this update. So why now? I mean, how is this different from the previous guidelines that we saw, you know, a few years ago? So one of the things that the AASM is always doing is reviewing the scientific evidence in areas where we have clinical practice guidelines and trying to determine where there is enough new evidence to warrant a guideline update. So this is something that's always on our radar. Uh, since the previous guidelines were published, there actually has been incredible growth in research on behavioral and psychological treatments for insomnia. So uh, when this came up a couple of years ago, which, by the way, is about how long it takes to update guidelines, um, we really felt like there was enough new science to warrant going back and digging into the literature again. So what are the recommendations? Well, there are a total of six recommendations in the new guidelines. Um, Perhaps I think the, mo- the most important one is that there is a strong recommendation in favor of using multi-component cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia as the mainstay treatment for adults who have chronic insomnia disorder. 
There also are some recommendations about um, briefer behavioral interventions and some single component behavioral and psychological treatments that are alternatives, either if CBT for insomnia is not appropriate or is not available. Uh, and then there's an explicit recommendation not to use basic sleep hygiene as a treatment when a patient has chronic insomnia. So we know that healthy sleep habits are important, um, but once a person has has gotten to the point that they have a chronic insomnia disorder, what we found in reviewing the literature is that that's almost never enough to mm. treat uh, a, the insomnia disorder, and that sometimes it actually delays initiation of other more effective treatments. So we expressly recommend against using just basic sleep hygiene when a person you know is suffering from a sleep disorder. Well, and I think you had shared with me this, you know, really very important point that these sleep hygiene recommendations were developed in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And and now people already know this stuff, right? This information is pretty easily accessible. So by the time they see us, they've covered this. That's right. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of people who come in to see me as a clinical psychologist have been suffering for a really long time. Uh, and, you know, it, maybe five, 10, even 20 years. So chances are that most patients have already uh, at least considered the impact of caffeine and alcohol. I've had some patients who've spent tens of thousands of dollars redoing their bedrooms, uh, trying to make them completely dark or just the right temperature. And the truth is that those are, most people have tried some or all of these things on their own before they walk into our office. Um, if it were that simple, I suppose people would be fixing these problems on their own. <laughs> well, that's kind of it, right? I, and I think, you know, you brought something up to me that I thought was, you know, I guess I never had articulated it the way that you had, but you kind of talked about the difference between when physicians ask about insomnia symptoms proactively right. versus that being sort of the reason why patients come to see us. Yeah, it's very interesting because, uh, you know, as we started thinking about patient preferences, patient values and preferences is an important component of our clinical practice guidelines. When we started thinking about that and looking at the available evidence, um, I think our perception as clinicians is different from what patients actually say. And what I mean by that is most clinicians that we talk to say, well, you know, my patients just want sleeping pills. Um, And what patients tell us is, in fact, that's not what they want but they think that's all their doctor has to offer. So they don't even bring it up with healthcare providers unless they're so desperate that they'll do just about anything, including taking a pill. So one of the things that we don't directly address in the guideline, but I think is just part of good clinical practice is to ask your patients about insomnia symptoms when they come in and complain about anything related to their sleep. Uh, And we also know that a lot of patients who have one sleep disorder have more than one sleep disorder. So we see incredible overlap between insomnia and obstructive sleep apnea, for example. Um, and we know that insomnia is a barrier to patients using CPAP effectively. So I think it behooves clinicians and it will help us provide better care to our patients overall if we actually ask them about, mm-hmm. uh, are they having a hard time falling asleep? Do they have a hard time with long awakenings in the middle of the night? How are they feeling during the day? How much do they worry about their sleep problems? You know, these are the kinds of questions that might lead us to uh, to addressing insomnia more proactively rather than waiting until people have been suffering for a decade and then walking into our office desperate for anything. 
Well, and so it sounds like you're you're kind of hinting at two things, right? So one is we need to make sure that we are talking with our patients about insomnia, and then and then the second component is the treatment, and is it accessible? Right. That's and and this is something that our guideline group talked about a lot. Cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is an extremely effective treatment. Uh, it's short, so it usually involves a handful of sessions with a, a trained professional, but there just aren't enough of us to go around. You know, you you mentioned in the beginning of the segment that, you know, half of the population struggles with sleep at some point, and we think somewhere between 10 and 20% of people actually meet criteria for a diagnosable insomnia disorder. So if you think about how many people that is on any given day in the United States, it's an overwhelming number of patients. Um, I believe, and I think our group believes that the science is compelling enough that the solution is to train more people to do CBTI. Mm. The solution is not to just settle for less effective treatment. Uh, and I think, you know, those of us that are involved in provider training, especially in mental health, which is where most cognitive behavioral therapies live, it's our job actually to train the next generation of clinicians to do good CBT for insomnia so that this access problem is actually a problem of the past. I kind of joke that part of my evil plan to take over the world is to make sure that in the future, every clinical psychologist coming out of graduate school knows how to treat insomnia. Um, it is <laughs> that one would be of fantastic. Most, right? I know. And it, it kind of amazes me. We talk a lot about how sleep is such a tiny part of medical education, but it's actually a very small part of education for mental health providers too. And that really needs to change. And so is it then easier to train a mental health professional about sleep or to train a sleep person how to do CBTI? So um, for CBTI in particular, I think it's easier to train someone who has the theoretical background and experience doing this kind of behavior change intervention about sleep. Uh, I also think that this treatment is best delivered by someone who has a relationship with a sleep medicine provider, because again, if a person has insomnia, chances are they might have another sleep disorder too. Right. I've been lucky enough throughout my own professional career to work closely with uh, a, a sleep center where, you know, if I have a patient who comes in uh, and says, you know, they want treatment for insomnia, but gee, they sure seem to be high risk for sleep apnea. I can make that warm handoff. Mm. And, and in more rare conditions too, I mean, I've had patients who come to see me who also have narcolepsy. And as a clinical psychologist, you know, there are certain things that are outside of my scope of practice and that close collaboration is really important. The challenge with taking a sleep medicine provider who has not uh, done training in how to get patients to change behavior in, mm -hmm. in using a cognitive behavioral framework so this is actually a skill that takes years to develop. I think what we would benefit from, though, is sleep medicine providers who are educated about what CBTI is and can really facilitate good referrals. Um, so giving patients the hopeful message that CBTI actually works for most people uh, and it works pretty quickly um, and encouraging them to actually engage in the treatment. Um, I think that those are the kinds of, of skills that a sleep medicine physician or um, another member of a, a sleep center team can really do to increase access is just by really having a thorough conversation with the patient, 
about what their goals are, and then encouraging them to actually follow up and get the CDPI. So I have to tell you, after we chatted last week, um, you made me feel so much more optimistic about something that I think, I don't know why, it's just been drilled into my head and probably just from my own experience about this, that we just don't have enough people like you who practice behavioral sleep medicine. And I really appreciated how you talked about the responsibility to train. So are there barriers to that? Or do you see that this is an area of of medicine that will start to flourish because of this increased demand? I think that one of the major barriers to getting cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia in the past was actually insurance coverage. Uh, a lot of payers don't didn't cover mental health treatment for insomnia. Uh, I think, you know, despite its weaknesses, one of the advantages of the Affordable Care Act is that it did increase coverage for mental health. And since CBTI is most often provided in that context, I think that actually did a lot to encourage growth in this area. In psychology, this area of specialization is a growth area. Um, it's So there's a lot of interest. Uh, whenever I do continuing education for psychologists, the attendance is overwhelming. Uh, the VA and Department of Defense both have large tr- provider training programs. Um, so I think that training uh, other providers to do this treatment is something that those of us in the field right now do need to take responsibility for. And and I also, again, other uh, medical providers that do psychotherapy, in particular psychiatry, I think this is just an excellent area uh, for psychiatrists who like to do psychotherapy to, uh, to get into as well, because a lot of the patients that they're managing for other conditions like uh, serious mental illnesses or depression or anxiety are also going to struggle with sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I know when I work with our psychiatry residents at UCLA, they just really enjoy having some non-medication options to offer to their patients. I do think that physicians can easily learn some of the other single component therapies like stimulus control. There's actually pretty good evidence that using stimulus control as a single component treatment is helpful for a lot of patients. Um, And it is a set of instructions that people follow, right? So have a consistent wake up time. Don't struggle with sleep when you're in bed. Uh, Go to bed when you're sleepy. Those are the kinds of recommendations that I think most sleep medicine physicians would feel pretty comfortable making in the context of their ongoing practice. Well, let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk about consumer sleep technology and whether it's helpful or harmful. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. What does the future hold for sleep medicine? We'll explore new innovations and their implications during Sleep Medicine Disruptors coming this March. Free for ASM members, this two-day virtual course will help you reimagine healthcare. Learn more and register today at aasm.org slash disruptors21. Welcome back. We're talking with Dr. Jennifer Martin about the AASM's new clinical practice guidelines for the behavioral treatment of insomnia. So there are a lot of apps and gadgets out there to help people track their sleep, which of course can also cause anxiety and orthosomnia. Um, What do you think? Are these helpful for patients? Well, you know, when I think about consumer products for tracking sleep, there are a couple of things that come to mind. 
Number one is that they're not really measuring sleep. They're measuring some proxy, and then they use an algorithm to decide whether the person is asleep or awake. So I'm always wondering about the accuracy. And unlike the actigraphy technologies that we all use in our clinical practice, the burden for validating their algorithms obviously is much lower. Um, and, and so accuracy is one of the things that comes to mind. But the other piece is that um, because we have this accuracy question, and I think even with the actigraphy that we might use in our clinical practice, we're always concerned about how valid it is in populations that have sleep disorders. The other question is, so, so what does it mean to the person? And I definitely see patients where tracking their sleep is part of working really hard at a problem that isn't solved by putting more effort into it. And what I mean by that is if you really want to stay awake, try hard to sleep, right? If, if you put your head <laughs> down on your pillow, and actually, if you go to bed at a time when you're not tired, you're, you're, you're even making it worse. So we have a bunch of people who get into bed when they're not tired because an app or a device or something else has told them to go to bed at a certain time. Um, and uh, I actually have a, a whoop strap that tells me to go to bed at 1030. Um, and, uh, some nights I'm sleepy at 10 30, some nights I might not be sleepy till 11, but if I listened to my whoop, I would be getting in bed at 10 37 every night, no matter what. <laughs> now, if I got into bed at 10 37 and I also thought, boy, I really have to get to sleep tomorrow because if I don't, then my recovery metrics are going to be lower or, you know, fill in the blank, whatever consequence you're worried about. Well, now I've set up myself up for failure. So one of the challenges with a lot of these consumer-facing devices is that people with insomnia sometimes use them not as a way to make themselves accountable or to try to improve their habits, but almost like to show how bad it is. Clinically, what happens is I, I have patients that come in and they, they might even be getting better as we're going through treatment and they say they're feeling better and they'll say, you know, but my wearable says I'm still not getting any REM sleep. Right. And, and the problem with this, again, goes back to my point about accuracy, that we, this is not a level of accuracy, especially when it gets down to the level of sleep stages that any of us would consider acceptable in our clinical practices. But our patients, like they're, they're, they're you know, whether they actually uh, feel like they can function during the day or not is linked to um, something that I think we all would agree is not sufficiently accurate. Mm-hmm. I do think they can be useful, though, when people are, for example, trying to increase their time in bed uh, because they're sleep deprived, which is obviously not the same as insomnia. But I, I have found sometimes these devices useful if somebody is going to, say, set a goal to be in bed at least seven and a half hours a night. Well, then they get some immediate feedback from the device about whether they're meeting their goal or not. So what about the devices that offer self-guided insomnia treatments? It seems to me like there's two different sets of um, devices and strategies that are emerging. And I, I guess I'm most familiar with app-based interventions. So there are some that are based on CBTI. So the two that come to mind immediately for me are the uh, free apps developed by the Department of Defense called the Insomnia Coach and the CBTI Coach. So those are developed by CBTI experts. They're, you know, designed to be, um, the insomnia coach in particular is designed to be CBTI, but self-administered basically. And for a lot of people, that's actually another way to consider how we might increase access to some of these treatments. 
But then there are devices that are a little too fancy for me. And they, (laughs) again, they sort of try to predict what time you should be going to bed and what time you should be getting up, not based on your own report, but on some kind of black box algorithm. and, and this is where I start to get concerned because as we all know, you have to look at the whole clinical picture. So I sometimes wonder if I had an app or a device that was trying to tell me when to go to bed, but I had a newborn baby at home and I was up in the middle of the night feeding the baby every few hours. What is the device going to tell me about that situation? Or maybe mm-hmm. I'm a caregiver for an elderly parent and I have to get up in the middle of the night and help them use the bathroom. Well, that's not really sleep disturbance that I'm going to do anything about. It's just the reality of my life. And as clinicians, we can weave our, our, our recommendations around those life circumstances. But these, you know, kind of algorithmic um, programs can't accommodate some of those challenging situations. Well, that's actually that's a really good point. And, and I mean, speaking of challenging situations, let's talk about the pandemic and pandemic related insomnia. So. I mean, obviously, people have been dealing with stress and anxiety and worries. And now, of course, we're almost a year into this, right? So mm-hmm. what can we do to help patients who, who have, you know, what we probably would have thought was short-term insomnia? Um, or has it, do you think it's too late? I mean, has it already become chronic insomnia? Well, I rely on the clinical definition that we use in, in, in the ICSD-3, which right. is <laughs> if it goes on for more than three months, it's its own sleep disorder. So I think one of the most important things that we can do is, you know, even when our, you know, sort of typical sleep apnea patient comes in who maybe has never struggled with sleep in the past, we should be asking how they're doing. One of the biggest changes I think that people have experienced is changes in their daytime routine, which used to serve as the scaffolding around their nighttime sleep. And now, you know, their, their kid, they don't have to get up and take their kids to school because their kids are going to school online. And they don't have to commute to work because they're working from home, or unfortunately, a lot of people are losing their employment, um, which adds to both stress and lack of routine. Mm. So a lot of times what I do is just encourage people to go back to the things that they used to do to set up that structure, get up around the same time every day, actually get dressed (laughs) into clothes, (laughs) shower, shower, brush your hair, right? All those things. Um, so kind of have a routine for starting the day consistently. And then on the flip side, going back to the routine that they used to use to wind down at the end of a busy workday. Providers should encourage their patients to go back to the things that supported good sleep in the pre-pandemic times. Um, and, and because everybody's a little different and what mm-hmm. one person might find relaxing, another person might not. But if someone had a good wind down routine in the pre-pandemic era, Perhaps there are some things that they could implement uh, again that would help them get back on track. Well, and I think probably even that knowledge that this is not going to be how they sleep forever, right? That we recognize that there's a situational component and these are still, we go back to the basics, right? Of, of the good tenants of sleep. Right. Yeah. So, so let me add one more thing there, because I think the other thing that that uh, sleep medicine providers can do is if somebody comes in and says, you know, every few nights I'm not sleeping so great. And it it just started a few weeks ago. I think some reassurance would go a long way. And the thing to do in that instance might be to not write a prescription, Mm -hmm. Um, but instead to talk about some of the things that, you know, might, might 
just normalize a bad night of sleep now and then. We all have them. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean it's a clinical disorder. It's almost like a secondary prevention approach that if someone is starting to struggle, are there things that we can encourage to avoid them um, developing a chronic insomnia disorder that later has to be addressed? So for patients who may be listening to this, what should they do to address sleepless nights? I think you've already talked about managing expectations, right? And that we don't, the expectation is not that we all sleep really, really well every night and a bad night here and there is okay. A lot of them are turning to melatonin. So talk to me about the statement uh, about melatonin that was released yesterday. Well, let me say two things, and then I'll circle back to melatonin. Number one is if you take good care of your sleep in general, a bad night or two is going to have less impact on how you feel and function. So I think that if we all accept every now and then we're not going to have our best day, our best night or our best day, just having generally healthy sleep. I, I think about it, you can kind of think about it like exercise. If you're generally a pretty active person and then you go on vacation for a week and you do nothing, it's not that big of a deal. If you're a sedentary person and you go on vacation for a week and you do nothing, it's really not that good for you. Um, the second thing is we all should follow stimulus control recommendations. So if you're in bed struggling with sleep for a long period of time and you start to get frustrated about it, even if you don't have chronic insomnia disorder, the best thing is to get up out of bed and do something else until you feel sleepy. That will prevent that conditioned insomnia that we all think about uh, from developing in the first place. Um, I think the temptation to reach for something like melatonin or an over-the-counter sleep aid is really powerful. Uh, I mean, mm -hmm. you can see advertisements for it all, all over the place. Um, the issue with insomnia, it's really interesting. Uh, there's a tremendous placebo effect with insomnia. So uh, what sometimes I, I hear about from my patients is that they struggle with sleep for a couple nights, and then on the third night, they just can't take it anymore, so they take melatonin. Right. Well, what we all know is that, of course, their sleep drive is very high on that third night, and taking the melatonin kind of gives them some hope that maybe they'll get a good night of sleep, and then, lo and behold, they do. And what their thought process often is is, it was the melatonin that helped, as right. opposed to having high sleep drive and not trying so hard. Uh, so I think, you know, this is, uh, it's funny because a lot of times patients will say, well, now you ruined the placebo effect for me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the truth is that there's no data that melatonin is a good treatment for insomnia. It, and, and if you look at the clinical trials that have been done, it's about as good as a placebo. Uh, but placebos work very well. Mm -hmm. So how do you think these guidelines are going to shape our field moving forward? Well, my big hope for these guidelines is that it actually increases uh, accessibility of CBTI. So this now enables us to communicate, for example, with payers about how important it is that they cover uh, behavioral and psychological treatments for insomnia disorder. There still are a few payers out there who seem to, um, uh, you know, they have a hard time with this. Um, but now we have a pretty strong evidence base. Uh, and in fact, I would argue perhaps one of the most comprehensive evidence bases in sleep medicine in general. I mean, there's something like 75 randomized controlled trials that informed that recommendation. Mm. Um, and that I think this allows us to advocate on behalf of our patients. Uh, I also think that 
these guidelines serve to uh, encourage change in practice in terms of uh, treating sleep hygiene as an intervention for our chronic insomnia patients, and instead to start thinking about it as maybe more of a population health uh, type of issue where this is education that everyone should have. Everyone should understand how important, you know, regular schedule, sleep environment, caffeine, alcohol, nicotine. I feel like those that's just general information that people should have, whether they have a sleep disorder or not. Um, but we need to shy away from presenting our insomnia patients with these recommendations and then ending treatment there. You know, but I think that this will help us do exactly what you've kind of charged us to do earlier on, where it, it's our responsibility to improve access, Correct. right? By recommending it, by talking to our patients with it, by, by you know, prescribing, you know, sending our patients to the behavioral therapist. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think the, the way that you had phrased it when we visited earlier about it's kind of our, it's our responsibility to make sure that our parent, our, our patients do have access to qualified CBTI providers. And so I'm hoping that these guidelines will help us. It'll arm us a little bit, right, to argue with the insurance company on our patients' behalf. And I, and I also think it 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 arms us with uh, reaching out to providers in our communities who um, and and trying to create these relationships between CBTI providers and sleep centers. I really. In my heart, I believe that that's how care is best provided is in this more collaborative spirit yeah. where where it's not just that a sleep center identifies insomnia and sends a patient out, but when a mental health provider is trying to work with an insomnia patient and they're hitting roadblocks that they have a place to send patients where they know they're going to get a thorough evaluation, a good diagnostic workup and high quality care too. So any final thoughts? I think one of the the real uh, strengths of these guidelines is the opportunity that's created by uh, the strong recommendation in favor of CBT for insomnia. I think what this means is that we have an effective treatment for a very common sleep disorder and the responsibility for making sure that people are well-trained and that it's accessible to our patients falls on all of us. Uh, so to me, this is an exciting time. I think that we, uh, we have a lot of work to do, but we're definitely heading in the right direction. That's fantastic. Dr. Martin, thank you so much for making time to talk with us today and for developing these critical guidelines to help insomnia patients. My pleasure. And I want to really acknowledge the incredible work and, and uh, that went into these guidelines from the task force members, all of whom, you know, I think are, are really invested in, in developing guidelines that improve quality of care for people suffering from insomnia. Thank you for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.